guys, welcome back to the Fire in the Desert with myself, Johnny and Pat. How are you going? Ah, doing pretty good. And uh, this is part two of Crisis of Leviathan Review. And we're now, uh, you know, we've previously in part one, we talked about uh, the theory of Christ, Crisis of Leviathan, which is uh, the ratchet theory. According to, you know, Robert Higgs, his theory is that how do we get such a big government is that when a crisis occurs, government will expand its powers and authority. And then after the crisis has finished, retrenchment of that authority never fully completes. It, it gets absorbed into the existing government structure. And so, you know, it's a, it's a ratchet that after one turn of the ratchet or the crisis, uh, we can never go back to pre-crisis, you know, spending government levels. Mm-hmm. It is all absorbed and so the next time it gets bigger and bigger, mm. and so we end up with this monstrous Leviathan, mm. you know, Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan kind of book, we talk about, which is a label for government. And we talked about the 1890s, where that didn't occur because ideology of having more responsibility, more government intervention, wasn't in the minds of the popular mass- masses, mm. nor was it in the people who were in authority. However, once we go to the progressive era of the 1890s and World War One, the Democrats sort of learned from the mistakes and they pushed in for uh, new legislation, yeah. which was to help regulate the rich mm-hmm. and redistribute that wealth, as well as the 16th Amendment, which, which yeah. is a massive power that the federal government can levy tax from the states without consulting, consulting yeah. them. And you also had labor laws, basically the draft, that forces people to work in the government sector mm. to fight for the wars and they can be paid at whatever wage that the government wants them to be paid at. Yeah. So massive changes, but we still haven't seen that big massive leviathan of a government mm. appearing. It's it just is, a shadow of it. It is the skeleton being sort of being yeah. built. Yeah. Mm. I think I think if we look at the analogy of a, of a house being built is kind of a good way to frame this because it's difficult it's it's really tricky to say to point to the government and say, this is a monster, this is bad, this is evil almost. Like, it's very difficult difficult to point at an individual pinpoint time where this is, this is not good. Because when you build, if you look at how you build a house, it involves a foundation, it involves a scaffolding, it involves laying bricks, and then you can do the interior design. When you look at those in isolation, each of those stages, it's like, it doesn't, give you the final picture you only see the final picture once all those individual things have come together in the correct order and it's a sequential order too you lay the foundation you do the scaffolding you lay the bricks i've just simplified the basics of building a house down to like four steps but serves the analogy i think and then when you see at the end you take a step back and oh i can see the house now but if you come across to construction day on like the construction site on day one you go Okay, you laid the foundation. I don't see how a house is going to get built here because you can't. And this is kind of it here. You've got the the groundwork being laid for some pretty incredible abuses of, of power in a country that was founded on the principles of the government should have limited power. So it's it's it, if you were there if you were there in the early 1900s in that situation, you would probably look at the government and go, "Oh, it's not that bad." It could be it could be a lot worse, but you see as a trick as you look in hindsight, you can see okay, this is the precursor step. And I think I would like to add is that um, 
we're starting to go into the tax, income tax, right? Mm. So now, you know, before we didn't have any income tax. We said, what, 2%? Yeah. And we're fighting over 2%. Can, can we go back to... I'm, I'm, can I please go back to that, please? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But now that you are paying income tax, right? Yeah. Well, I'm paying this. Maybe I should get something out of it. Mm. And so now that, you know, gov- demand of the public... Yeah. for the government to do something about it is more stronger, right? Mm. Because I've paid you to do something. Yeah. I paid you to look after mm. us. You're not doing something about it. Well, it's also, if you think about when income tax comes in, then you have one generation, then the generate the next generation grows up with income tax being a reality at 2%. And then if it were then to increase, they don't know a world without income tax, essentially. It's just a fact of it's a fact of life. It's a reality. In the same way, if you look at it as uh, being a digital native today, there are people who do not know a world without the iPhone or the iPod. Oh, sorry, the, uh, the iPhone or the iPad. Yep. I have uh, very fond memories of growing up with cassette tapes and VHS tapes, and there are, I've spoken to people who have no clue what those technologies are. Yeah. It's not their fault. They grew up in a time where those technologies. Were, were, have become obsolete and they aren't around. Mm. But I have I have memories of them. But if you go the next generation, they, they they'll have no idea what those are. So it it actually isn't that difficult to realize that it's a stepping stone. Yeah. All right. So I guess for this part, we're going to look at the New Deal era, so nineteen thirty three to nineteen thirty nine. We're going to look at World War Two, and we're going to maybe just creep into some ideas about beyond World War Two. So, the New Deal, 1933 to 1939. And a quote from, uh, some say that Franklin D. Roosevelt saved capitalism, while others speak of FDR's collectivist revolution. Whatever one's terms, no one can reasonably deny that the political economy of 1939 differed hugely from that of 1929. Moreover, many of the institutional innovations of the 1930s remain embedded in a socio-economic order today. Acreage allotments, price supports, and marketing controls in agriculture, detailed regulation of private security markets, extensive federal intrusion in union management relations, enormous governmental lending and insurance activities, the minimum wage, national unemployment insurance, social security pensions, and welfare payments, Production and sale of electrical power by the federal government, fiat money, wholly without commodity backing, the list goes on and on. So, New Deal was started by the, off by the Great Depression, yeah. so the, the Great Depression 1929 mm-hmm. to 1939. And so there was mass speculation of uh, the roaring bull markets in, on the share market. Yeah. People were mortgaging their houses mm-hmm. to invest in the stock market, so you had General Electric, AT&T, Steel, Radio. These were like the the Googles and Facebooks yeah. of that time. You know, when people overinvest or people mm. just pump that up, then yeah. that bubble is going to grow. Explo- and it exploded. Exploded. So then what happened when it exploded? People started panicking and selling off, moving Sen- to liquidated Sen- assets. Essentially what happened with our GFC. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it deflated the uh, commodity prices as mm. well. Right, because people, now people lost tons of money. Even if people were mortgaging their houses to invest to get to get in on the game, suddenly I've got to pay my mortgage. Oopsie! Then there was massive bank runs as people tried to withdraw the money. Yeah. Eventually, the money supply dried up, mm-hmm. and then that bank couldn't 
distribute any more money, right? There's just physically no There's money, no money to left hand to out. distribute, yeah. And so the bank would collapse. Mm. But the Federal Reserve, remember, we saw that the Federal Reserve was established back in part one, yeah. right? Back in uh, the progressive era to mm. support these banks, to yeah. be the banker's bank. Yeah. They didn't do their job. That's what Milton Freeman is mm. saying. The Federal Reserve will lend out money to the bank. Mm. That bank would hand out the money. Yep. And then the guy would have the money. Yeah. Right? But the guy doesn't just hold on to the money forever yeah. or put it on his bed, right? He puts it back into back the into bank. the economy. Yeah. <laughs> he puts it back into the economy. Yeah. So it's just a temporary thing. And of, and of course, putting it back in the economy, I think it's important to point out that is I'm going to buy food or I'm going to pay this bill. I'm going to pay, I'm going to use the money for its in, for its intended purpose. So yeah. Uh, what else? Stock prices fell in 1929. GDP fell by 15%. Mm. And then unemployment rose to 23%, right? Because all those companies, uh, you know, the steel and the railway industry, the mining companies, all those, you know, collapsed because the, their banks also collapsed. Mm. Uh, farming and industrial workers were heavily affected. So what was the solution? So uh, President Hoover was in charge during that time. And people said, you know, he did nothing. Mm. But actually, you know what? He did a fair bun- bunch of things because... Mm. Because you had the gold standard, it was linked, you know, your, the US dollar was mm. linked to gold prices. Mm. They couldn't just, you know, keep printing money. Yeah. It had to be linked against something. What? You, you can't print money? <laughs> what, what reality is this? You know, they actually had, the government had a limit because yeah. it was linked to the gold prices. No, no wonder they got rid of that. Or oh, the gold standard. <laughs> um, so they had to resort to protectionism to protect yeah. American businesses, mm. right? And stimulate production of local goods. So they yeah. had tariffs on imported goods. Yeah, uh, to encourage people to buy U.S. goods. Yeah, and that and that's always the and that's the double edged sword of tariffs, isn't it? Because when you tell another country, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna charge you more for your goods," they'll turn around and just slap it back right at you. Yep, and that's what exactly what happened. It yeah. made it worse. And so you know there was other stuff to do to stimulate the economy, mm. which was to and uh, reduce unemployment, mm. which is establishment of public mm. work programs. So mm. you had building roads, building dams, that kind of stuff. I think it's I think it's interesting work to point out that we we've spoken about this this phenomenon before, but the the federal government the government's solution to this crisis was more government interference. The Great Depression was caused partially by government interference to begin with. We've we've spoken about this exact topic before and how and how how much of a fool's errand that actually is. So Hoover's grand solution, and for that matter, FDR's grand solution was more government intervention to solve a problem that was caused by government intervention to begin with. Yeah, and so do you think, you know, did it hinder recovery? Because that labor force, right? Mm. We talked about the strikes. Yeah. And those um, massive corporations mm. had problems with giving the wages because people were demanding high wages. Yeah. Now people are just fighting fighting to get employment. Yeah. Instead of being now permanently linked to, you know, public works programs, mm. could they have gone back into the private sector and help, you know, the railways. Yeah. Because it's a cheaper labor force, mm. then maybe logistics costs of freighting is mm. lower. So then yeah. other people can take advantage of that. Yeah. And steadily and and recover the, that economy. And that's the free market. Like what what inevitably happens when the government interferes in the free market, it it stops the free market from do from from working, from doing what it's supposed to do. That's inevitably what happens. So you end up causing more damage and more harm by trying to help. Yeah. So there was a World War One organization, you know, set up, and I didn't mention that in the previous one, but there was a World War One type 
organization which look after finances just to fund the war. Okay, yep. Right? Now it's called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation to deal with this poverty stuff okay. in the Great Depression. Right. On, uh, the, on the homeland? On, on, on the US, yes. Sure. But funnily enough, that structure of the organization mm. is basically that World War One organization rebranded. Mm. In fact, all the people who are there in World War One were rehired for this organization mm. to fight the war against poverty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll read it from the book. The administration's most important anti-depression action, the creation of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, clearly benefited from the emergency rationale and the wartime analogy. The RFC Act, which became law on January 22, 1932, was officially entitled An Act to Provide Emergency Financing Facilities for Financial Institutions to Aid in Financing Agriculture, Commerce and Industry and for Other Purposes. The RFC was obviously patterned after the War Finance Corporation. Section 6 of the Act evidenced the revivification in the plainest possible way by saying that Section 5202 of the revised statutes of the United States as amended is hereby amended by striking out the words War Finance Corporation Act and inserting in lieu, therefore, of the words Reconstruction Finance Corporation Act. <laughs> Many of the RFC's first employees had previously worked for the WFC. So, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's the same government. It's, it's the same war kind of thing yeah. or, or crisis kind of emergency. Mm. It's just change from war to poverty or unemployment or economic mm. collapse. But, you know, Hoover didn't quite do enough in that time and he was voted out and he had uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt come in. And what did he do? He abandoned the gold standard. He forbidden the trading of gold or stocking of gold at home, which had limits on monetary policy because you can't print more money because it has been linked to the gold standard, which kept the supply low. Mm. And now they're able to print more. So, quote from the book. The day after Franklin Delano Roosevelt took the oath of office as President of the United States, he issued a proclamation claiming, calling Congress into a special session to convene on March 9th. His first substantive action on March 6th was to proclaim a national banking holiday, the very action he had refused to endorse by Hoover just three days earlier. The proclamation referred to withdrawals of gold and speculation in foreign exchange that had created a national emergency. It claimed the Trading with the Enemy Act of 1917 as its legal authority. Well, 1917, what's that? World War One. Yeah. <laughs> it uses that act. Um, Oopsie. By the second week of March 1933, an extraordinary conjuncture had developed. One, a genuine economic crisis, especially the massive unemployment and pitifully depressed production and consumption. Two, an artificial economic crisis produced by the national, nationwide banking shutdown. Three, a widespread sense of crisis and a feeling that only extraordinary measures could prevent an even greater catastrophe. Sentiments manifested in a numerous and diverse calls to do something, even if dictatorial powers were required to do it. And four, a new administration taking office unencumbered by perceived responsibility for past ill fortunes and unchecked by opposition from a partisan congress, eager to obstruct and embarrass the president. The crisis, John Garrity had written, justified the casting aside of precedent, the nationalistic mobilization of society, and the removal of traditional restraints on the power of the state, as in war, and it required personal leadership more forceful than necessary in normal times. Mm. The only ingredient lacking was a strong leader, 
someone who could seize this pregnant moment and bring to fruition its immense potential. And so you had this massive shift from labor employment from private to public. So you had this thing, uh, which you know, FDR was accused of creating the government agencies or the alphabet suit. So you had unskilled labor, so you know, young men who are unemployed, mm. employed in the civilian conservation corps, and also in the works progress administration, which were trained in military style camps to do public works, to do you know, roads construction. You had an introduction of the Social Security Act, you know, a welfare protection from the market. Um, so if the market collapses, you still have some kind of payment by the government yeah. to keep you um, well keep the, To keep the economy stimulated, essentially. Uh, basically, to for the government to give you money to buy your bread, mm-hmm. buy your goods and stuff. Which, and that's and that's the interesting thing, is that on face value, that sounds like an inherently good thing. It's like you want to make sure that all your citizens have enough food for bread and whatnot. But... As we can see today with our welfare system that's grown and expanded every every year, you go, well, they need to, we need we, things are more expensive. Our wages haven't kept in check with the cost of living. So there's now a, it's, it's now disproportionate. And you've got and you've got a whole host of other other societal ills and problems that have emerged out. So it comes down to you're trying to use the government to solve these problems again and again and again, and it's failing. Mm. But you have a you have a multiple generations of of the people who have grown up knowing nothing else but the government stepping in to solve the problem. Yeah, and so what do you do? You know, I'm not against government, right? Neither, um, neither, neither. Yeah, I think you still need some kind of body, independent third party. Yeah, uh, to do justice to do administrate the justice system mm. and also you know you want to have someone who has police you know so you can manage the crime yeah you know is the government responsible for what you do in your personal life in your bedroom yeah is it responsible for helping you buy a house what and and that and that i think is the question that this is a civics question that we unfortunately are not taught we, this should be taught as part of public education our education system what is the purpose of government? And that's not a question I don't think anyone really necessarily consciously thinks about when they go to the ballot when they go to the ballot box to cast their their vote for their for their governmental representatives. We should be asking this question of what is what is its purpose? What should it what should it be doing? And also what shouldn't it be doing? Hmm. And I don't think this is necessarily this is this is I have the right answers here. I could, I'll be the first to say I don't know if my answers are are the right way to go about it, but it is some. It is a conversation we as citizens should be having about our government of what is its purpose, what should and shouldn't it be doing, what are the boundaries, because then we can then find some common ground, common consensus of, or at least hope to try and find some common consensus of what our government should be looking like. Hmm. So going back to the New Deal, you know, mm-hmm. who are the key people instigating all this stuff? So there's a lot of demand from labor unions yeah. because all these industrial people got laid off. Mm. You had a lot of people who were small farmers. So uh, there was a book, you know, The Grapes of Wrath, where yeah. the small farmers in the central of America, central of North America, all fled to California because they heard there was like, you know, employment there. Yeah. These are the people who lost their farms because they can't grow anything. Plus, there was 
all these banking collapses. Uh, you had the people in the politics, you had the Democrat Party trying to fight for these, uh, for these guys. And so there were key moments in history. Mm. So development of these government organizations. So you actually see the expansion, the expansion. of government. Yeah. There's more people now in government. There's more spending by government. Mm. That was moving away from the gold standard of fiat currency. So now you're lifting, you're definitely lifting the credit limit of the government. Right? Yeah. So we talk about lifting the credit. So the government can levy taxes on these people. Mm. Now that US dollar, it can be, it's not linked to any gold standard. So it can, it can choose whatever it can do with that gold, mm. with that uh, US dollar. And then you had the Banking Act of 1933. So government is now insuring banking deposits, right? Mm. Because you had people lost their savings because when a bank collapsed. Yeah. Now government will insure you if your deposit is lost. Mm. So now you have government intervention in the economy and also in your personal savings. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the interesting thing is at every point along this journey, no one is saying no. Are they? Every, everyone, this is all consensually given away. Well, if you think someone's going to help you, yeah, you're not going to say no. Of course not. No, it's not, it's not in our human nature. And then when someone gives you money... It's like I'm not going to leave money on the table. I'm not stupid. Yeah. That and, that, and that's and that's innately the human, the our predilectionalness, human predilection to falling further and further down this track. But it's worse because it's a crisis. Yeah. So you, you have you're not thinking. You're not thinking. Yeah. You're not thinking rationally about it. To uh, continue from the book, uh, to administer the Industrial Recovery Act, except for the Public's mm-hmm. Works Program. So, which was assigned to the Public Works Administration and placed under the control of the Secretary of, of the Interior, Harold X. Roosevelt in, established the National Recovery Administration and named General Johnson to head it. Then flamboyant Johnson launched into the task with unrestrained gusto, calling on the wisdom acquired from his service in the wartime mobilization. He strove to whip up emotion, enthusiasm, even hysteria if possible, to promote the codification of American industry and universal compliance with the codes promulgated. No one appreciated the importance of symbolism better than Johnson, who attempted to bring about an overnight reversal of many deeply embedded values with regard to the market economy. And so, to quote from, so Higgs quotes from another person, competition became economic cannibalism and rugged individualists became industrial pirates conservative industrialists, veteran antitrusters, and classical economics economists were all lumped together and branded social Neanderthals, all dealers and corporals of disaster. The time-honored practice of reducing prices to gain a large share of the market became cutthroat and monopolistic price slashing. And those that engaged in in this distardly activity became chiselers. Conversely, monopolistic collusion price agreements, pro-ration, and cartelization became cooperative or associational activities and devices that were chiefly designed to eliminate competition, bore the euphemistic title, Codes of Fair Competition. A whole set of favorable collectivist symbols emerged to describe what American laws and the courts had previously, under other names, regard as harmful to society. And referring back to Higgs's book, and Barak's suggestion, Johnson adopted an emblem, the famous Blue Eagle, to be displayed by by all businesses pledged to comply with the codes. The NRA organized mass demonstrations of public support. 
including a parade of 250,000 people in New York. Billboards, posters, buttons, and stickers displayed the NRA's messages. Volunteer boosters like the four-minute men of the wartime Liberty Bond drives spoke in support of the Great Crusade. Radio stations and newspapers fell, or were driven, into line. Not since the war had there been anything like the outpouring of hoopla. And like the wartime spectaculars, these had clear purposes, rousing patriotic feelings and creating in the public mind the impression of so extensive support for government policies as to make disagreement appear close to treason. Again, the country resounded with criticisms of slackers who failed to absorb the government's propaganda and conduct their affairs in accordance with it. The efforts of mass persuasion were, according to a prominent historian, unparalleled among democracies in peacetime. Their only counterpart was the chauvinistic extravaganzas staged by the Nazis in Germany. That's a bit of an interesting comparison. <laughs> but, but what are we seeing here, right? It is that, you know, we talked about crisis language used by the media. Mm-hmm. Now the government, according to what Higgs is saying, mm-hmm. during this New Deal era, is, you know, you had war, uh, war, wartime propaganda, right? Yep. Because you got to convince people to support the war. Yeah. Now you have this, you know, reconstruction finance corporation, mm. which is doing a effectively war on poverty, unemployment, yep. that kind of stuff. And that's a massive footbill. Yeah. And they're having, they're also using... Wartime war propaganda. Their wartime propaganda language. Yeah. And saying, if you obstruct this, right, you are, you are, a, you are what is it? You are a traitor. You are social Neanderthals. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? Uh, well, you are I'd, I'd pirates or... Social social pariahs. Uh, if, you, if there's any sense of free market competition, then you, it's called economic cannibalism. Yeah. There's that kind of crisis language mm. to draw support. Yeah. And... Um, well, propaganda. You, do you think it's a fair thing to, to use or... Of course, of course not. No. <laughs> What, well, when you have to use manipulation tactics, when you're debating an issue, you should be using the merits of your argument. You should be putting forward the case to try and convince someone not to social shame them or to bully or belittle your opponent into agreeing with you. When you when, should when, be able to have free discussion rather yeah, than being yeah. labeled, you know, Nazi or bigot. Yeah, or exactly, like. exactly. Because well, by belittling your opponent, mm. then you're getting your way, but they're not. Well, you're not winning. Your your arguments are not able to stand on their own two feet. If I'm t- if I'm instead saying, "Hey, here's my argument. Don't agree with anyone. Anyone who disagrees with me is evil." Yeah, it's like when it comes down to that's essentially my, that my argument is not my idea is good. My argument is then my opponent is a monster. Do not agree with him. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're a monster too. That's and that and that is that is an argument you can certainly take, but we've you'll note we're no longer arguing the issue. We're no longer arguing my idea. You're just we're arguing over name calling, which last time I checked was something we should have been leaving in the playground. So you know it's 2021. We're living in a crisis. Do you sort of see that sort of propaganda language? Of course, right yeah. now, yeah. Okay, give me well, some examples. What's a some what's are some of the slogans we can hear? I'm just trying to think of some. My brain's shutting down. Um, all right, no that's all right. I, um, I could just read some out for you. Yeah, if you if you, um, so, you, you know, or... I sort of see them uh and this is maybe not exact, you know, propaganda, but I see patterns, mm. right? Because it's, we're seeing patterns in history. 
So, you know, you are reckless if you get together, if you're mm. dangerous if you get together, right? I wasn't sure whether you wanted me to go down that route. But oh. Okay, no, that's cool. No, no, I'm just pointing it out. Yeah. And, you know, I don't really like when YouTube censors it, but that's, uh, we should be able to speak freely about it. Mm. I'm not saying this is wrong, but uh, I am held in that tension because yeah. there is there is the big tech people now. Yeah. <laughs> look into this. You are called super spreader. Remember? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you are that link that mm. causes this pandemic. You are, you know, you well, are the well, cause of this stuff. A, a good, okay. If we're going down that route, so a good, a good example is being told that we need to quarantine or isolate. Now, it was interesting because I, I looked at what the word quarantine means, and quarantine means you are sick. You need to wait until you get better before you can leave quarantine. Now, we were using the term quarantine. For people who were perfectly healthy, we didn't know whether they were sick or not, but they were perf- they, as far as we knew, the person could have been perfectly healthy. Yeah. But they were still put into quarantine regardless. Yeah. And, and you know what? You got like the news people calling, you know, science deniers. Yeah. Like yeah. Medical deniers. Mm. Um, even anti-vaxxer. It yeah. Will, and that's well, weird. It gets, lo- it gets lumped together. You essentially get lumped together with, you're not one of those anti-vaxxers. And it's like, no, no, I'm... I'm not talking about vaccines. I'm talking about being told to lock down in my home. Yeah. It's like, but you'll note that what happened was you got lumped in with this other group of people. Yeah. Or, um, you know, some of the slogans that I think what the government's using, we're all in this together. Yeah. You know, everyone's going to wear a mask. Everyone has to wear a mask yeah. because yeah. it's not effective. So we're all in this together, which do is like want, a you, very wartime kind of propaganda. Do you, do you want to be COVID safe? <laughs> COVID safe. It's like, uh, no, I don't want to be COVID safe. Uh, wrong answer. Yeah. It's like no one, no one in their right mind is going to answer that in the negative. I think where does disagreement come from is the solution. So, yeah. you know, what happens after this post-crisis mm. is well, there'll be some studies that yeah. says it'll become too late mm. because it's all going to be ratified in law. Yeah. Is did the lockdown actually prevent some of the stuff? Mm. And was it overall worth it? Because yeah. we are spending a lot of GDP to save lives. Mm. That's not to say that those lives aren't less valuable. Yeah. But there's a lot, you know, there's there's causes in mental health. There's mm. suicide, depression. Yeah. There is loss of employment. Yep. There is massive debt. There's you know the job keeper and all mm. kind of stuff. We're spending a lot of money. Where's the risk analysis and where's yeah. the cost benefit? that's been done yeah there's no no one's doing it because right now we're just pumping out trillions of dollars yeah. into we're in crisis we are in the middle of crisis mode yeah but the interesting thing is that the measures that we as a people have accepted and gone yes this is okay we will go along with this such as isolating locking down take queensland for example so we had one we had one local case and i think eight to ten Cases that were in were overseas travelers coming in, so we got we got about a pool of around ten people with uh, with COVID that had been conf- that had been confirmed, and we had to lock down for the weekend and two weeks of masks. Yeah, and for was... the entire state, not Fantastic. not the, the region that was that where the people were operating. Which I would argue, yeah. if we're if we're going down the protectionist route on the sliding scale of freedom to protection. If we're if we're opting to go down that more protective route as a as a solution, or as a, sorry as a response, then okay, 
the re- the greater Brisbane region, maybe there's a fair argument to be had that we need to lock down and uh, wear masks. Okay, we can have that discussion. But the entire state? Yeah, like Townsville, Cairns. Yeah, exactly. So that's where the the, lunas- oh, the lunacy of the, some of those ideas did pop, did come out. And I was looking at going, well, I haven't have made that much of a song and dance of wearing masks and things like that uh, to that great a deal. But the, the, the rules that were being made and the rules that people were going along with no longer, with me at least, were making much sense. Yeah. <sighs> it just feels like we just wing it. Well, that well, we, we, well, one one thing one thing that was interesting was that I was ref, I was reflecting not that long ago of it feels like we're just rolling, and I think I made made this comment in a, a podcast episode a little while ago. Yeah. Of, it feels like we're just rolling from crisis to crisis, where there's no stopping or slowing or pausing or resetting back to normal. It's just rolling on and on and on. Did you um, did you catch it when uh, Biden called gun violence a pandemic? Epidemic, yes, epidemic. yes. But to that same point, like epidemic and pandemic, they sound really, really similar, which I think was intentional. The problem, though, is that epidemic is still medical. Yeah. It's still linked in with a it being a medical condition. But he's what he's what he's done is he's equated the two and gone. We should use the same. Essentially, it is acceptable to use the same solutions or same heavy government hand, heavy-handed government tactics to solve the COVID problem and solve the gun problem. But it's also hitching into the mindset that, mm, hey, hey guys, you've been facing an epidemic, mm. a medical crisis. Mm. This gun violence is similar to that medical yeah. crisis. Mm. And, and I'm you going to draw upon your fears yeah. of epidemics. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, think, I think there's, there's a, a funny thing is, with a lot of government propaganda, there's a kernel of truth there because... If my propaganda was a blatant lie, like there was no truth at all, people probably would not be able. Would, there would be a, fra- a set of, call it a a fraction of the people who would watch, look at the propaganda, and go, "No, that that's ridiculous. That's not true." There's a kernel of truth into most into most of it um, that makes it palatable. That makes it go, "Okay, I'll accept this." Um, the there is a medical issue racked up in the gun violence debate uh, in the U.S. with mental health, where, yeah, you do have people with mental illnesses being able to access guns. And I look at that and go, well, I think that there's a I think that there's a room for legal gun ownership, as well as putting in place some some more mechanisms to make sure that people who shouldn't be getting guns, such as the such people who are dealing with mental uh, mental illnesses at that point in time. Make sure that they don't get access to guns, or better idea, get them the care so they don't they can appropriately deal with their mental illness. But what's happening is we're taking the low hanging fruit of that uh, that particular argument. Or in America, they are they're taking the low hanging fruit of easy fix, easy solution, and not dealing with the heart of the problem, which is you've got people doing horrible things to each other. Anyway, that's a segue. That is a debate for, for another time because uh, that we could do a dozen episodes talking, digging into. Uh, I hope not a dozen episodes. No, no, <laughs> we, we we could do a lot of episodes into talking about 
the Second Amendment and the appropriate <sighs> use of it. But yeah. that's a, that's not time for another time. All right. Um, anyway, so what's getting back on track? What happened? <laughs> you, got, you, got, you got me on my hobby horse there. What, what happened at the end of uh, the new or the New Deal sort of yeah. uh, part? So you had you know outcome of support from the farmers, unemployed youth and elderly. Mm. You had the growth of the welfare state, social security. Which continued after the you know, conservation corps and those work programs were abolished. So that was the ratchet. You yeah. Know? You have a massive change in the direction of the nation, of the ideology that government is now getting into people's lives and providing you support when you are unemployed. So what it does is the setup of events from 1900s to World War One helped catapult other ideas into existence. That the wartime organizations of you know organizations World War One was brought back to combat the crisis of economy. Uh, you had, yeah, so now government's involving in economics and trade. You had the introduction of income tax, which creates a social contract between people and government. That is, if I'm paying tax to you, I mm. want my value back for my tax, right? Mm. And so that's, this demand to do something is increased, as we said earlier. So that is uh, the New Deal. So let us go to World War Two. So, you know, Roosevelt was still the president. So how did this ratchet increase? Mm. You had a change in shift of business, which was now previously skeptical to now align with the government. Wartime production, government preference and direction of economic production was now in control by the government. Uh, it caused inflation, right? Because that same money, right? If I'm price-fixing... Uh, steel, mm. and I'm asking you that steel to be delivered to make ships, right? And mm. you can't, you can't change the price of that kind of stuff. Then the value of that money is going to be worth less, yeah, right? Because government can ask, I want more steel, I want more steel, wants more steel, but there's no, you know, someone has to make profit out of it. Yeah, that's going to cause inflation, and so the government reacts by price control and fixing. Yeah. So an example is rent control. And that had a secondary effect of causing discrimination. So, mm. for example, from the book, after a few months of ad hoc price fixing, the OPA on April 28, 1942, issued the General Maximum Price Regulation, which made the highest price change in March 1942. The legally allowable maximum henceforth for most consumer goods. 18 more specific orders impose a rule, plus a rule imposing rent controls on 323 housing areas fleshed on the administrators, corpus and commands. But at the prices fixed by the government, quantities demanded generally exceeded quantities supplied, and non-price allocations selling the available products to friends, to whites, to pretty girls, to those first in line, popped up everywhere, threatening to make commodities unavailable to persons unfavoured by the sellers. And so, if money isn't discriminatory, right, Mm. because during that time I can house troops anywhere, I can't discriminate, um, based on money, I'm going to discriminate on other things, right? Because I want the best tenant for that same price. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, the anti-discriminatory becomes the discriminatory. Mm. We talked about black markets, right? There has to be that void to fill in that gap. Uh, key organizations. So you had the RS- RSC from the New Deal era becoming an influence. You had the War Resources Board from 1939 to 1942 and the War Production, well, Production Board in 1942 to 1947. So I'll read a little quote from the book. During the war, these powers, which Jones described as 
perhaps the broadest powers ever conferred upon a single government agency, would be exercised on a grand scale as the federal government became an investor, producer, and commercial dealer through numerous RFC subsidiaries. Metals Reserve Company, Defense Plant Corporation, Defense Supplies Corporation, Petroleum Reserves Corporation, Rubber Reserve Company, U.S. Commercial Company, War Emergency Pipelines Incorporated, War Insurance Corporations, and others. Here was wartime socialism in the strict sense of governmental ownerships and sometimes management of the means of production. And what was the other thing? The other sort of side effects and key events is uh, probably the Japanese internment, right? So remember, you had you know Pearl Harbor, you had... Yeah. The now Japanese is on the opposition mm. towards the United States, and then there's all these Japanese Americans in America. So what yeah. did Roosevelt do? He had one of the most egregious violations of human rights by hurting in 110,000 Japanese Americans. Mm. Two thirds were U.S. citizens, and they were hurting them into concentration camps, which the Supreme Court chose not to veto because of wartime crisis. Right. It's a fact that often isn't discussed it's a it's almost like a dirty a dirty secret of world war ii is that america the air quote in this case the good guys were fighting the nazis who were putting the jews into concentration camps but going into america they were doing exactly the same thing so who had in some in some cases you'd go well okay both sides doing doing the same thing what's the big issue world war ii was fought on a moral argument of this action is evil, so we are going to oppose evil. But both factions were doing the same sort of thing. So what do you do? Kind of of burst the bubble a little bit there. All right. Um, You also had domestic lend-lease programs, so you had the development of the military-industrial complex or wartime contractors. So I read from the book, businessmen, many of whom had been hostile towards a new deal and since 1935, increasingly adapted themselves after 1940 to working smoothly with governmental officials. Uh, quote, the attitude of suspicion, of slow, meticulous negotiation, which characterized the relationship, uh, the relation of government with businesses at the beginning of the war, gave way very largely to an attitude of mutual confidence as the war went on. The multitude of contracts made and friendships cemented between military officers and corporate executives during the war augured well for continuation of their genial and mutually beneficial dealings. After 1945, the Cold War, the development of even more sophisticated weapon systems, and a great migration of retired military officers into corporate employment in the defense industries, well and I ensured that the military-industrial complex would not only survive but prosper. As indeed, it has to be an almost unbelievable degree during the past four decades. During 1946 to 1985, federal purchase of goods and services for national defense totaled about $3 trillion, That is the incredible sum of three zero 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 zero, making the Pentagon itself one of the world's largest non-market systems of resource allocation. Many of these firms continue to enjoy the use of government-financed plants and equipment, just as they had enjoyed such use during the war. Of government-financed industrial facilities valued at almost $18 billion original costs and built during 1940 to 1945, about 80% were used by private firms after the war. 
Here was hard, tangible legacy of World War II of special importance in such industries as aluminum, steel, synthetic rubbers, shipbuilding, and aircraft fabrication. Sometimes the firms occupy government-owned plants as leases or merely as occupants paying no rent. Sometimes they acquire titles from the government. Thomas McCraw had observed that the institutional aspects of surplus property disposal suggest that the military-industrial complex is related in some degree to the purchase by leases of so many war plants. So, mm. it's a crisis, right? And so the government's going to do whatever it takes to get this crisis over with. And that's when you have government and private corporation actually joining together, right? Mm. We're seeing, what is it? The government actually going to subsidize you or give you free land to build your production facility on. Mm. <laughs> and then what happens after the crisis? They still, the corporations they still own the keep land. it. They keep yeah. it. Or they pay no rent. Yeah. Or pay you $1. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that is what, you know, Eisenhower calls the military industrial complex after mm. he became uh, the president. That is, you know, now you have people moving back and forth between these organizations. You know, yeah. retired generals go become CEOs, CEOs of company. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially a post, post-war career. And, and so that is what the, you know, the retrenchment, right? Yeah. After World, World War II finishes, the retrenchment never completes. It never goes, the ratchet never goes yeah. back. Yeah. Which, which again, it is this a, just an, a linear line and you're just going from crisis to crisis and going up and down up and down or is this kind of like more a a glass tube that you're filling it up with more as you pour more liquid each time you pour more liquid into the into the bottle or the tube it is a new crisis and eventually you run out of run out of bottle you start it starts to overflow is that what's happening or is this just a we just continue to go on and on and on. No, it's going to continue on. What are some of the things that came out from World War II? You had wage caps. Mm. You had price fixing, right? Because inflation was increasing. So mm. the government said, no, nah, we're going to stop you from paying this much. And so you had what in America is, you had, they had the health insurance, right? So if your employer can't increase your wage, mm. it offers you compensation in the forms of health insurance. Yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's a legacy that exists today in America. Yeah. Uh, well, now it's now it's lit, it was offered as a incentive. Now it's a, a it's a requirement. Hmm. So, yeah. but and now you think like, well, why do you have to give me health insurance? Mm. Well, the stuff from World War Two. Yeah, <laughs> you had foreign aid. Mm. So the government's now giving away taxpayer dollars to the British and the USSR back in World War Two yeah. for lend lease programs, mm. and and now you have that on today with government using. Um, to mm. political support or yeah. soft power. What else is there? You have consolidation of the welfare state, right? You have all these veterans in World War II. And now that is a very select group of people, right? Because it's like millions of people are served in World War II. They can, they can be your voting base. So you mm. had the veterans resettlement through uh, GI Bill 1944, yep. which is a good political outcome, right? Because... Uh, if the government's saying, I want to help you transition from military life to mm. civilian life, I'm going to give you um, a way of money, you know, funding for your university, I'm going to free education, mm. I'm going to give you free medical health benefits, I'm going to vote for you, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's like, I, again, I would be stupid not to. Uh, what else? You have taxation. So you, you had the introduction of this policy of paying withhold tax. Mm. 
So that means the government can withhold your pay yeah. straight, and it goes straight to you to mm. to them. You know, yeah. for us, it's what pay as you go yeah. in Australia. <laughs> That's introduced now. So mm. now, I I can't be trusted to hand my money back. Yeah. I am. My money is automatically deducted. Yeah. My tax has already been deducted. Yeah. That's a, that's a massive power. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. With that said, you do have the option with taxes. You you can opt you you can opt to have your your entire paycheck delivered to you, but you are then you will then get a tax bill at the end of the year. I've never seen that one done. Have you? Well, I, I my understanding is that that's something you can do, but I, I in this case I opt not to because. There's no temptation. There's there's a temptation then to spend the money, yeah. and then the taxman comes calling, and I go, "Oops, I owe X amount of dollars." Yeah, which I don't have in my bank account because I spent it on um, Star Trek DVDs or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it, showing a sign of my time of the times of buying a DVD. <laughs> hmm. uh, one anyway, of the, one of the points is that any government can conscript prime workers by the millions. It can can eliminate unemployment. Mm. That is a true lesson of 1940 to 1945. So, quote from the book, but not all emergency activities of the government disappeared. Some functions migrated from emergency agency to a regular governmental department Mm. or to a newly created agency. When a WPB shut down, newly created civilian production administration absorbed some of its powers to allocate resources the Labor Department took over the Employment Service and the Reemployment and Retraining Administration. The State Department received jurisdiction where previously the Foreign Economic Administration had operated. The Commerce Department assumed the functions previously exercised by the Smaller War Plants Corporation. OWM, now designated the Office of War Mobilization and Reconversion, took the responsibility of, for overseeing the remaining price controls from the OES. Thus, part of the immediate dismantling of the command economy was spurious, being mere consolidation and relocation of powers, some of which became permanently lodged in the government. Some price controls continued until late 1946. Some wartime subsidies were paid until the summer of 1947. Rent controls persisted even longer. Yeah, and so, you know, the legacy of World War II continued on. Yeah. After World War Two, mm. <laughs> and that ratchet is now fully locked in place. Locked, locked in place, yeah, yeah. And that, again, we were talking about this generational thing. Is that's I think that is what's more the more most concerning thing is that as you go from one generation transitioning over to the next, the new generation doesn't know what life was like before. I'm just stop. I'm just thinking for a moment. If you've got children growing up during this COVID crisis right now, watching everyone wear masks, they're growing up seeing that's normal. They'll grow up not realizing or not not having it dawned on them that there was a time where people didn't wear masks. Like that wasn't a thing. So we talk often about the new normal. Is that what we want as a people? I, I don't know. Yeah. And, and again, it's not it's not it's not for me to say I'm not saying again, this is not me saying I have the right answer or the solution. It's like this is a con this is a conversation we should be having together and going, what is it that we want? You know, would life pre COVID be better as opposed to post COVID? Yeah. It or it takes time to work out. Mm. But if 
government now or the health department has the power to lock down a state or a country, is that some kind of power I want to give to the health department? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, looking at world, beyond World War II, because this book finished around 1980s, mm. we haven't considered GFC. Yeah. So again, that was massive bailouts by the government of the banks. Mm. Uh, you had you now have COVID. You know, mm. we we spent. I think Australia had another trillion dollar package. Yep. Uh, to revive the economy. Yep. Uh, but that's not linked to any commodity, right? That's fiat money. Yeah. So what is your? Has it? Will there be inflation coming soon? Yeah, that's the. Uh, we're seeing crisis language. You talk mm. about that sort of stuff. Yeah. Like, you know the the anti-vaxxers, the, the super spreaders, mm. the science deniers, you know, they're like, you know, the flat earth deniers, yeah. flat earth, yeah. flat earthers. Well, pretty much conspiracy theorists yeah. like that. So if you have questions, you are instantly told, oh, you're one of those conspiracy theorists. This is the bucket that you belong in. And guess what? These are your neighbors. Mm. The flat earth, the people who flat earth, vaccine, uh, anti-vax, yada, yada, yada. These, these are the people that you, that you, you're with now. I was like, no, I wasn't, thinking about this stuff before but yeah, yeah. and, and uh, you know, these are to compel people mm. to to fall in line to fall in line but also change the mindset so yeah. you know this is you need to accept this you got to sacrifice this like a war mm. kind of crisis thing yeah so well, you can I've heard it, this I've, well i've heard it described as a war on covid it's like well that that's actual language that i've heard heard used is it covid just, only covid 19 or covid 21 don't know well that's the thing is when you declare a War on drugs, war on terror. The, we've used these terms before. It's like when you declare a war on something, that something has to be tangible enough so that you can actually declare victory against it. If you're declaring war against a enemy that you can't even see, that is just floating at the floor, in this case, floating around in the air, it's like there is no victory conditions that you can go, this, we have won this war. Can you? Well, not easily, at least. You know what? But but again, it's that, it's that crisis language, wartime language that is being used to describe every single thing. So you remember? And never ends. You remember what two thousand and what pre two thousand one was like, right? Vague recollections, yeah. yeah. So, enough, so enough, enough recollections. So yeah. do you think we're living in a more secure world after the war on terrorism? No, no, of course not. <laughs> it's more extreme. Which, but again, that was government intervention coming in, rolling in to create solutions to the problem. Yeah. But no, I don't think we're more. I don't think we're more free because of that. You have a surveillance so state. Yeah. Well, you have. I when I dug I dug into the Patriot Act recently because I was curious because now I'm going to be tracked on this podcast. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> no, no, keep going. No, no, no. I I looked into the I looked into the Patriot Act and went. Hang on. The progressives and the conservatives, so one is pro-big government, one is pro-small government, in America at least, both of them voted on this bill. Yeah. Well, I looked, I, into what, I looked into what it actually was doing, and I was going, hang on, what do you mean that you're able to wiretap and record metadata and information? Like, that, that doesn't sound like a good thing. <laughs> Well, it sounds good when you're going to prevent, you know, 3,000 deaths and the Twin Towers from collapsing, right? Well, again, no, that, no one's going to sound like no one in their an right apathetic mind is gonna... person if you oppose that. Oh, because yeah. Because you yeah. you're on the side of the terrorists. That's yeah, what it, they were saying. It, exactly. Well, and exactly that was the opposition that was, if, if anyone opposed, that's what they were, they were tarred with. Yeah. But 
that was 21 years ago. Uh, 20, sorry, that was 20 years ago. Is there a time place where the where the ratchet goes back? No, it doesn't. It just, it's just that's the way of life now. And do people have a line in the sand where this is enough? There's one step too far, or does it, are we just continuing to ratchet up and up and up? Yeah, it's, increasing this tension here. And so you know, like I'm thinking now in this crisis, right? Mm. We talk about World War Two, which is corporation, the, yeah. the military, military corporations. And government joining mm. together. Yeah. Are we going to see in COVID health corporations, pharmaceuticals, mm. doctors, universities, yeah. all that kind of stuff, nursing unions? Mm. Are they going to join together with the government and become more powerful? It's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, that's a trajectory. Isn't well, it? well, that, that we've is, seen from case studies. That, yeah, that, that, is, that is a, that is certainly is a trajectory. And again, it's that these these institutions were put in place for a public good. But the problem is that you have, I think, there's, it opens the doorway for corruption, for corrupt individuals to look at these institutions and go, hey, I can get power and influence and through uh, using these as vehicles to advance my own personal goals. Yeah. And it stops becoming a public good and then becomes a broken, corrupt, failed system. These, these entrenchment of rules, legislation and powers... They often benefit the big businesses, right? Yeah. Because they have the lawyers, the specialists mm-hmm. to deal with this leg- legislation. So it quashes out the small guys because they're operating a thinner margin. Mm-hmm. And it strangles the little guys who actually call for this legislation, right? Yeah. Because remember, we talked about the rich versus poor. Now we're going to put this new act in, but end up the big guys. It's a double edged sword. Use, a, use it as a whacking tool yeah. to suppress their competition. Yeah. And so that's the ir- ironic part. Well, actually, it sounds very similar. Did you, enough, I was just listening, reading a news article, I think it was yesterday, about uh, in Florida, they've just introduced um, anti-riot laws in response to Antifa in the US from rioting and smashing buildings. And the wording, well, God, I've got to do a bit more digging into it, but the wording of the law essentially is no more, no more violent riots. And on face value, that sounds good. Like, we don't want to be having violent, violent riots, but who is making the rule on what a violent riot actually is? You and I might have a, an agreed definition of, hey, if you're burning things down and smashing windows, that equals violent riot. But if you're protesting something that the government doesn't like, it opens... A, a, it, a, it Essentially, it's a law that's been put forward and embraced by especially people... Uh, conservatives in america they've embraced this idea because right now the left faction in antifa that is running ruckus the problem though is that the law has doesn't have concrete or clear definitions of that constrain what the government how the government can actually use that law well so it's a double-edged sword if you're saying no more violent riots Mm. there's another worrying idea because there's another worrying idea that speech can be violent i know yeah no more hate speech. So if, if you're protesting and just talking, but mm. then someone else sees it as violence because yeah. they disagree with you, yeah. can you be... It, it's, this, it's this exact same thing. But remember, the, con- the conservative faction is supposed to be pro-limited government. But they're embracing this rule that will, because it, it advances their political objective in the short term. Same thing in World War II is that these advance 
They achieve short-term goals with long-lasting, generational-lasting implications that just snowball. So, so where do you think the trajectory is? I don't know. I don't know what the end. What the end trajectory is, but it's where does this ratchet go? I don't know. I I, I don't have the I don't have the answers for that one. I'll build a time machine and come come back and check in with you. But um, oh, that's me at the door now. Um, <laughs> but so, uh, but this I think I think that what the lesson we can take away from this is that we as a people had we we've been given a unique position in this time in history in the last 300 odd years of being given the power back to a certain point where we get to control what or have a say well, actually not control it's the wrong word we get to have a say in how we uh we live our lives and how our the government operates but what we've what i think we've been seeing especially over the last 150 odd years we've been discussing that it's been scaled back it's and we've been we've been happily giving over more and more freedoms and those freedoms never get given back to us they it's a one-way transaction to zero percent tax or two percent uh yes i i vote i vote for that can i oh i can't vote for that so so here's interesting bit that robert higgs writes Mm. is he goes that the trajectory isn't socialism or communism right because you think progressivism would lead to socialism or communism It leads to fascism oh, yeah. or participatory fascism. That are you know these are these options right yeah. available for you, but they must serve the national interests yeah. or the, the interests of your community, versus the socialist communist t- dictatorship that mm. they will dictate you you know direct you to do whatever they want you to do, yeah. versus fascism which limits the options. Mm. That you have similar to what you have with you know health insurance yeah. you, well, your government can choose this many options well fascism and socialism are essentially two sides of the same coin they're not diametrically opposed entities they are actually much closer to closer together than a lot of people would believe in that in order for them to work they necessitate a strong government presence in the lives of the individual uh, yeah and one other thing that he asks what adds is that the you know trajectory of this participatory fascism mm. is that it tolerates private ownership. You yeah. have private ownership yeah. in a sense, air quotes, only because it serves the national interest. Yeah, at the moment it doesn't serve the national interest. A, a good well, a good well, a good example actually with the COVID, with the COVID uh, crisis has been uh, if you uh, work for an essential business, then you can stay open. If you're a non-essential business, you close, you go home. If you can't work online, you stay shut. Mm. I that was something actually that was something I did start to I did start to question of going, hang on, how who determined what businesses were essential and non-essential all of a sudden, almost overnight? Well, it's the big businesses that can operate exactly because they comply. Yeah, in exactly. Marks of the rules. Yeah. yeah. So what do you do to the small well the small cafe? That can't can't open up. That can't have these cleaning regimes. That have these masks or these space. Yeah, rooms. all these all the all these rules and tick boxes they have to check off. Oh, the big businesses just shut they down. just what? they absorb the cost. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they shut down. Yeah, exactly. So, but where did where did we decide? So who sat down and decided 
Okay, list of businesses. Um, each each business is a card, and these card these these businesses over here as cards. They get they're essential. We need to keep them open. These ones, they yeah, we they they can live. They we can live with them closing down for a little bit. Uh, bureaucrat. <laughs> it's like who? Well, okay, bureaucrat. Who voted for them? No one. <laughs> no that's one. that's the beauty of this entire trap. Well, this spider web almost that we've created for ourselves. So how do you avoid it? How do you reverse the ratchet? Well, I think that once the ratchet's been sprung, you can't reverse it. What we need to be mindful of is that we need to be aware that there is this ratchet that is this hype. This, again, this uh, what would you call it? Proverbial ratchet, almost yeah. that exists, and that we need to be careful when we allow that ratchet to move. Mm-hmm. We need to control. But we need to ha- ex- exercise more control. I think over what the government is doing and be more account be make them more accountable and that mean that requires us to be more active and aware of civics of how our, what our government is doing in order in order to make sure that we have again we have a common agreement of where we want to go um, it's not it's not a and i don't think it's a it's not a definite it's not a definitive Listen to me, I have the answers, because I don't have all the answers. But I think what we've been discussing here in these podcast episodes is we can look at the track record of history, identify trends, identify and see what has happened in the past and where we've come to, and there are principles that we can derive from them. Okay, so what's your takeaway points from what we've done so far? I think that kind of was my takeaway right, point. So one of the news that we're going to break for this episode is that mm-hmm. this is probably the last episode, the end of the season, because mm-hmm. uh, I've got my own personal stuff I'm going to manage, which will take away time mm. from uh, developing more episodes. So um, for the listeners out there, that yeah, we are officially closing it after this on season three. Uh, and look, it might come back in the future. Who knows? I hope so. But uh, I've got personal issues not like not emergencies I got to deal with, but it's just that I have got other work opportunities out there which would take away time mm. from recording. And you, Pat, also are pretty busy with yeah, your personal yeah. life. So, Pat, what have you uh, got to be, I guess, reflect on after these uh, three seasons? Well, I think it's been it's been quite 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 a wild ride uh, sitting sitting down and having these these hour hour long conversations about different books and history and politics and culture. And really delving, I've delving into some really interesting topics, and definitely for me, learning in in prep in prep for these conversations and researching and re- doing my own reading and yeah. learning about things that I didn't full. I guys had some level of awareness of, but not a deeper awareness of, and learning about it, yeah. and really ha- really thriving on having these sort of conversations. What was your most enjoyable moment? Probably the Solzhenitsyn speech. I really, I really enjoyed delving into that one. And uh, yeah, if, if you listen to if you listen to the episode, I was kind of a bit of a bit of a bender of that one, listening uh, talking about it. But um, at home too much. I, I think I think so a little bit. But uh, I really I really enjoy, really enjoyed delving into that speech and his ideas that he was talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, I really wanted to go a bit more because mm. you know, he does some good speeches and. It was one of my, you know, first episodes where I actually quoted from him. Yeah, um, 
yeah. Uh, what about you? I think um, that's one. Uh, the other one was, I guess, uh, Aurelius's one. I was just I was just about to mention that one as well. Uh, yeah. Living in harmony, the world, like just mm. letting go of all the frustrations, mm. uh, accepting life and death, accepting, um, being confident, uh, having discipline yeah. in yourself. Mm. I think it's the per- the personal character ones, the, the the conversations we had talking about personal character. Thankfulness was yeah. one big, that was the key, key mm. bit because it's not a virtue that is celebrated. Yeah, it is all about the me culture. Mm. I think. Yeah, because we could spend we could we could have spent all of our podcasts talking about the current affairs and political culture battles, things like that. We could we could have done that, but I think that because we stopped. And to talk about some of these more principles and what would the word what would the word be? Uh, virtues. Virtues, yeah. The, the more the more the, vir- the virtues and having those sort of conversations, especially especially at the start, set up a really good foundation stone for where we could then discuss and explore more of these cultural political questions, especially in the context of history, and really delve into what are the principled approaches here, not just the, my faction says this, so here are my marching orders. So really trying, really endeavouring to formulate our own opinions and stand on those arguments and take those arguments forward. All right, let me ask you, uh, if you could, would you do this again? No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm pressing the stop button here. (laughs) No, I, 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 I... I think that one of the most rewarding things, in in all seriousness, has been the taking an issue, taking on board an argument or an issue, and exploring it in depth and having a conversation around it. It's not just. I think very rarely have we, unless you're quoting from a book, or one of us has been quoting from a passage of a book, uh, have is it been a scripted? Here is my pre-canned answers or responses. It's been a genuine conversation, which has been really rewarding. Yeah. All right. Um, what would you if you could do okay if you could do it again and if we could do it in a season four yeah what would you improve on or what do you think some of the things we can improve on next time um maybe introduce some video video yeah <laughs> now it's like t- t- typical tech heads like hey what better technology could we throw in here oh. now i i think what i think our format is something a bit it's a bit a bit more novel where again we're not just talking about political current current events yes that gets threaded in uh but i think the real interesting is we're, we're talking about the principles first that's a, we've taken that re- i think we've taken that yeah i wanted to aim for something that's evergreen so mm. you know stuff will probably stay in a web for a while mm. and so there'll be probably listeners 10 20 years on mm. they might look into this one and they'll be like oh that applies to what we're doing right now yeah or, or in the world that we're living in right now yeah so I hope this will be enduring rather than just one off. A one off, yeah. I think I think that's the benefit of that that's the important thing that we've done is that we've I think the important thing we've done is we've tried to stick to oh I hope hopefully we've endeavored to try and stick to those principles and our listeners will be able to hopefully tell us if we've if we've done that or not but stick to those principles those virtues those founding ideas that have then that allow us to form a basis to discuss more Complex, more big, or bigger, more complicated or different socio-political current affair type topics, and have that lens. Not a 
I'm a progressive or a conservative lens. It's a, here are my principles and values. Here are things that I find important. And here is now how I can use those principles. And and that's what I want to get back with the podcast. Mm. That is, you know, the media would just shout down something or would just carefully, cons- you know, construct a, a show or a script yeah. that would not allow for free discussion mm. or opposition. It is... Like, you know, we've had some disagreements, but yeah. we've tried to approach it. Yeah, in but a way I've pa- got a pile of mud sitting out here to throw at you. <laughs> and we'll try to approach it in a way that's more gentlemanly, and, uh, and that's yeah. how you get to the truth, yeah. rather than just, you know, calling down anti-vaxxer or... Yeah, you know, exactly. Cannabis, exactly. whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. well, I think, it's re- I think it's really important from a political discourse, when you're going to discuss politics, leave the, leave the schoolyard taunts behind you and go okay, I'm talking to a fellow human being here who might have a different opinion and you might go away from a conversation. We might go away from a particular conversation not seeing eye to eye and recognize that that's okay. You don't need to convince everyone. But I think one thing we do need to agree on is that we are both human beings with equal value and worth. If you start there, there's a, there's a, there's a chance for coexistence there. We can get along. Any last words to our listeners out there? Oh, I think a big big word of thanks to everyone who has been listening to us uh, sit sit here and talk for... How many? So we've done three seasons, about 10, 10 episodes apiece? Uh, well, not this, not this one, but yeah. No, essentially... It's quite a long time now. Yeah, like sitting... If, if, you've, if you've found us and listen, listening to us this for... Since we started, it's thank you, thanks, a word of thanks very much. Yeah, it's and uh, yeah, quite gratifying. I guess for myself, Johnny, uh, I'll say I'll thank you guys for listening. Yeah. All right, we'll see you guys some other time. Indeed. All right, see ya. See ya.